Now, there's a um, kind of common view, isn't there, that religion, Christianity, that if you embrace those things, if there is a God and you embrace that God, then it must mean that your life shrinks in some way, that you will end up with, I don't know, less pleasure, less joy, less life in, in some way. I mean, think about what goes into the religious worldview. There are, there are rules, aren't there? Things you can't do, things you must do. Then there's guilt. When you break those rules, what do religious types like talking about? They like talking about guilt and shame. And then there's, I guess you could argue, kind of regressive morality. While the world moves on and embraces new lifestyle choices, religious types say, you know what? You shouldn't be doing that. Become a Christian, and it's not more life you get, but it seems, or so people think, it's less life that you get. This contrast between the religious and the non-religious kind of struck me a while back when I was driving to a, uh, a midweek prayer meeting. This was back in Southampton when I lived there. I was going along the high street um, in, in Portswood, a place in Southampton near the university, and I spotted a group of students walking down the street, all dressed up as fairies and heading for a night out. Now, they're all blokes, so my assumption is they were from the rugby team heading for a fun evening out. And it struck me, what do Christians do? We go to prayer meetings, we read the Bible, we go to church, we worry about what God says we can and can't do, we deny ourselves and our desires. What do other people do? They dress up as fairies and they go and have a good time. Now, dressing up as fairies may not be the thing that you're interested in, but you see the point. When you compare a Christian with the non-Christian, who does it look like who's having the fun? Who does it look like is having more life? Doesn't seem to be the Christian, does it? But then you come to Isaiah 54, and here we see God's vision for humanity, for his new humanity. And it is a vision of abundance, abundant life, abundant love, abundant beauty. Last week we saw what it is that makes this abundance possible, this new humanity possible. The death of the servant, Jesus Christ, on the cross who takes on God's wrath and our judgment so that we can be restored and redeemed and put right with God. Isaiah 54, after that moment, Isaiah 54, and to some extent the rest of Isaiah, then is the Lord laying out his vision for this new humanity. Now the problem has been solved, our sin. What is God's vision for us? And he says, I'm going to bring you life and love and clothe you in beauty. There are three images that the Lord uses to describe his people in this chapter. And each image helps us understand an incredible turnaround that the death of Jesus brings. He will bring life to a lifeless womb. And love to a loveless marriage. And beauty to a desolate city. Life, love and beauty to the lifeless, loveless and desolate. Let's think about those. First of all, abundant life. Listen to verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Now, at first, that seems like an incredibly insensitive thing to say, doesn't it? Sing and rejoice, you who are childless. Childlessness isn't a cause for joy. It is a cause for, for grief and weeping. 
Because the childless woman is a picture of God's people, Israel. God always promised that he would grow his nation, Israel, into many, many descendants, people. They would outnumber the stars in the sky. But at this moment in history, Israel was shrinking. More than half of the nation had disappeared off into Assyria and to some extent never to be seen again. And the other half is about to be occupied and exiled by Babylon. Mother Israel is childless. But the Lord says to his people, sing and rejoice, not in your lifelessness. No, sing for joy. Why? Verse 1, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband says the Lord, you will have children. And it's always like this with God. He brings life out of the lifeless. The first parents of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, had no children. They couldn't have children. Yet God promised them, your descendants would be like the grains of sand on the seashore. It wasn't some sick joke. Because God gives life to the lifeless. He gave them a son, Isaac. He did the same for Rebecca and Rachel and for Hannah and others. Life out of the lifeless. It is the story of God, isn't it? It's the story of creation. Everything out of nothing. Life out of the lifeless. It is the story of salvation. Life, eternal life, bursting out of a lifeless tomb. God brings life out of the lifeless. But who is this offspring? Who are these children? Is God saying to Israel, look, return from exile and you're just going to have lots and lots of babies? Well, not really, though that does happen, but that isn't the particular promise here. No, these children are different. They're not biological. You look back to Isaiah 53 if you have a Bible, speaking about the servant who is killed. Isaiah says, 53 verse 10, And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, that's the death of the servant, he will see his offspring. So who produces these offspring? Where do all these children come from? They're the offspring of the servant, those who trust in Jesus. They become the children of God, the new humanity. Spiritual rather than biological. And this new life, is abundant. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. God says to his people, extend your house, make room. And I love how the Lord urges not on the side of caution, but on the side of excess. Don't hold back. You think one extra room will be enough, build 10 more rooms. You think a few extra chairs around the table would be enough? Bring in a thousand more chairs. Don't hold back. There'll be an abundance of new life. An abundance of people joining God's family. Now, a few years back, Laura um, had to go away for the day. And so I was left looking after the kids. Um, I could, you could just call it being a dad, couldn't you, really? I, I was left being a dad uh, for the day. Now, when the kids were all younger, I, was, I always felt a bit overwhelmed when it was just me. And so I did what I usually did on this particular day. I threw money at the problem. And uh, we went to the local garden centre near where we live and took them out for a snack and a drink. 
It's one of those garden centres that has everything. You know, you go in there and you can, you can buy anything from a, a car to a swimming pool or whatever. But we, we were walking around and we got to the toy section and uh, Eliza said, I, I'm just going to have a tea party with the soft toys. And she was quiet for a while. And as a parent, you think, this is nice. I love this quietness. And then after two minutes, you start worrying and panicking. You've not heard anything. So I looked down the aisle where I left Eliza, and there she was, sat on the floor, the shelves empty, and what looked like a thousand soft toys around her. A massive tea party. And it seemed like there was no more space, but then she found another ten. And she said something like, that there were so many on the shelves, I didn't want to leave any out. All of them gathered around. That is what God is like. And it's what he wants us to be like. There is always room for more. He doesn't want anyone to be left out. You see, the Lord is bringing abundant life. And with that abundant life comes abundant variety. So verse 3. You will spread out to the right and to the left across the whole earth. Your descendants will dispossess nations. God's family will cover the earth. And this promise about dispossessing the nations, given what the rest of the Bible says, I don't think it means that that, that God's people are going to destroy and do away with the nations. Rather, nations are going to be incorporated in to God's people, God's family. You see, abundant life and abundant variety. All nations, people from all kinds of backgrounds. Make room, God says to his people, because I am going to bring in abundant life to this family of mine. And I guess one obvious question for us is this. Are we ready to make room for others to join us in God's kingdom? Are we excited about this vision that God has for abundant life and abundant variety? Now I imagine when I ask that question, you immediately think, yeah, of course, absolutely, bring them in, more the merrier. But then, I wonder, because the message from the world that we live in at the moment is that we should be cautious about increasing numbers of people. You know, we we, we think that the climate, the environment, it can't cope with any more people. We think too many people will inhibit our enjoyment, be a burden on us and our resources. See, we're trained to think that an abundance of life is a bad thing. I do think we bring that attitude into the church, don't we? We like things staying as they are. We like being a smallish group who basically get to know everybody. We worry that if too many people join the kingdom and start coming to our church, then we're going to lose something, especially if they're different to us. Yet in theory, we love the idea of abundant life and abundant variety. In practice, I think we're much more reluctant So listen again to verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Make room. Brothers and sisters, let us be a church that makes room, that says to all who come to us, we can find space for you. You're no trouble. It doesn't matter about your past. You trust in Jesus. Well, join us. It doesn't matter what nation you're from, what social background you're from, you trust Jesus, come and make yourself at home amongst us. 
God's family will be filled with abundant life and abundant variety. Let's make sure that we do not hold back, that we welcome those into our family who the Lord brings to us. Then the vision moves on from um, who's going to be in this family to what life they will enjoy when they're inside, a life of abundant love. Let's have a look at that. Now, in the first image, we saw that God was able to bring abundant life to the lifeless. In this image, we see that God will bring abundant love uh, to the loveless. Have a look at verse 4. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Again, here is God speaking to his people. And he says to them, don't be afraid, don't worry, don't be anxious. And what is it that they are fearful of? It's shame. Five times in this one verse, shame is mentioned in some form. Disgrace, humiliation, shame, reproach. The thing that they feared was shame. Shame is a horrible thing, isn't it? To be shamed is to be exposed, to have your faults and your failures put on show for all the world to see. To be shamed is to be excluded. It is to be shunned and avoided and left out. Shame, it, it leaves us feeling worthless and unlovable. And God's people feared shame because they'd experienced it. Their sin, their, their, their failure to, to love God, their idolatry, their, their, their failure to defend and protect the weak and do justice. All of that has been exposed by God, by the prophets. You, you can read about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and others exposing God's people's sin. And they've experienced exclusion. The Lord has withdrawn from them. From his people, he leaves them and he hands them over to the surrounding nations. Yes, they feared shame because they knew how terrible shame was. And it's a fear I think we all have, isn't it? Like some pretend not. I read something yesterday and the guy was saying, shame is, is a wasted emotion, as if you don't need it, get rid of it. I just don't think that's possible. We all fear being exposed, having our lives laid bare for all to see. We all fear being excluded, turn, people turning away from us in disgust. There's a book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And in it, he interviews people who've been publicly exposed and excluded and how they deal with it. One person he interviews is a woman called Justine. She had a great life, but then one day she tweeted something totally inappropriate. It was a mistake. But she tweeted it, got on a plane, turned her phone off, and within five hours, before the time she'd landed, the tweets had been retweeted thousands and thousands of times. And by the time she'd landed, she'd lost her job, her reputation, and her friends. A te terrible error, but one that she felt she could never escape from. Uh, John Ronson, the author, put it like this. The worst thing Justine said, the thing that made her feel most helpless, was her lack of control over the Google search results. They were just there, eternal, crushing, never going away. 
Justine, that shame was and is unending. Her mistake and her error forever on record in Google's search engine. Whenever she applies for a job, there it is again, exposure and exclusion. And for the Lord, we are in some ways the same as Justine. Our record, our failures, our most shameful thoughts and desires, the Lord sees them all. But instead of crushing us with them, listen to what he does, verse 4. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. He doesn't expose or exclude. Instead, he marries us. Verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. We get to share, not in our shame, but in his glory. He marries us. And look what that means, verse 6. The Lord will call you back. Verse 7. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Instead of exposure, the Lord covers us with compassion. Instead of exclusion, he gives us his hand in marriage. He offers us his love. And his love, this compassion is unending. He will never expose us or exclude us again. Verse 9, to me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Just like God promised never to flood the world again in anger, so he promises never to abandon his people again in anger. He will love us with an unending love. You grasp how wonderful this promise is? God is not like Google. He doesn't keep a record just waiting any moment to crush us again with shame. No, he knows the worst about us. He can see our hearts and our history and our future. And for those who trust in his son, he says, I will never expose you. I will never exclude you. I will love you with an unending love. Do you know, I just want to take a moment, I think I've said this before from the front, when we've talked about shame before, Sometimes we feel shame because of the terrible things we've done. That is what the Lord is talking about here with his people. We feel shame rightly. Our lies, our harsh words, our anger, our lust, whatever it is, deep down, most importantly of all, our rejection of God, we feel shame rightly. But sometimes we feel shame, we we fear exposure and exclusion because of the terrible things done to us. Victims will feel shame. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because others have wronged them. We feel worthless and unlovable because of how other people have treated us. See, those kind of people have nothing to be ashamed of, and yet they still feel it. But here's the point. Whatever the cause of our shame, the promise is still the same. He will cover our shame with love and compassion. And all of this is possible because of the suffering servant who died for us in Isaiah 53. The Lord Jesus, with my sin on his shoulders, went to the cross fully exposed. His clothes 
were taken from him. And the Lord Jesus, with my sin resting upon him, went to the cross, excluded by all. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Do not fear exposure or exclusion. The suffering servant was exposed and excluded for us. And so God says to those who feel worthless and lovable, those who fear being exposed and excluded, I will love you with an abundant, unending love. Brothers and sisters, if that is how our Heavenly Father treats us, and that is how we should treat one another. Not to expose and exclude, but to point one another to the forgiveness and the grace and the abundant love that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Abundant life, abundant love, and finally, abundant beauty. The last image in these verses, we, we've, we've moved from a mother to a, a wife, and now it's a city. And it's a ruined city, verse 11. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. You can imagine the city of Jerusalem. After years of enemy action against her, years of, of, of enemy occupation, lying in ruins, the former glory gone. Probably a bit like those images coming out of Ukraine, isn't it? Buildings in ruins, rubble across the streets. And what is true of the city, though, is true of the people in the city. God's people were called to be a light to the world, a walking demonstration of the goodness of God. The way they lived was meant to reveal the glory and goodness of the God they worshipped. But like the city of Jerusalem, their lives were in ruins. And that is how God finds us. He finds us as ruined cities. Cities corroded by our pride, our faithlessness, our anger, our lust, our greed, our selfishness. And look at God's vision for this people. Verse 11. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. The city will be built with the finest jewels and the most precious stones. Its splendor will be so dazzling that you couldn't look at it. Remember, this is a picture of the people. So what is it? about these people that will make them dazzle with beauty. Verse 13, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. In righteousness, you will be established. Now, I don't think children here means literally little people. I think it's talking about the people of God. They will be taught by the Lord. They will be disciples of God. They will be established, built up in righteousness. Right living. You see, the abundant beauty that God will clothe his people in, it will be the beauty of lives lived right, lives lived well, lives of righteousness, justice, love, lives that know the right order of things. First, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then, love your neighbor as yourself. At first, it sounds pretty dull, doesn't it? You know, when you think of a beautiful 
dazzling life. A disciple of Jesus Christ, obeying his commands, that's probably not what first comes to your mind, is it? Our culture has only one category, it seems to me, for beauty. And it's external. How you look, how you adorn yourself, what you wear, the shape of your body. And whether it's social media or advertising, we hammer and crush people with these impossible images of beauty. But that is not true beauty. True beauty is a heart that adores the Lord. True beauty is a heart that finds contentment in Christ, even if all else is taken away. True beauty is a husband who honours Christ by honouring his wife, and a wife who is faithful to Christ by being faithful to her husband. True beauty defends the weak and the vulnerable. True beauty is selflessness and self-sacrifice and self-control. It is generosity and thankfulness and gratefulness for the good things that God has done. Yes, in the world's eyes, that all sounds pretty mundane and dull. But in the Lord's eyes, it is dazzlingly beautiful. And as a father of three girls, this is the beauty I want them to aspire to above all else. And as a father of a son, this is the beauty I want him to treasure above all else. The New Testament calls it being clothed in Christ. Putting on Christ. The Lord will take a desolate city and clothe it in beauty. He will take a desolate people and clothe them in righteousness. Enable them to live the life we were meant to live. So here is God's vision for humanity. Yeah, the world may think Christians and religion is lifelessness, restrictive. But the Lord doesn't think that. His vision for humanity, this new humanity, is one of abundant life and abundant love and abundant beauty. Do you know, there's only really two commands in this passage. Sing for joy and do not be afraid. It's a nice way of summarizing it, isn't it? This is God's vision for us and for all who trust in Jesus. Fearless joy as we experience his abundant life and love and beauty. Nothing to be afraid of. Because of Jesus, ultimately, everything to rejoice in. Fearless joy as we live out God's new humanity.